to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, as we um, finish out our book, finish out the book of 1 Peter, and, uh, and continue to pray for me. I've got a, a few things I want to talk about in the coming weeks, but I'm still praying the Lord will lead us to our next uh, series. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to pick up in verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Be sober-minded... Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that through it you might grow us in your grace and strengthen our faith. Cast before us again our Savior. In the name of Jesus, amen. Before I begin, let me say that uh, where it says that we're to greet each other with a kiss of love, you know, I think there are either five or six New Testament uh, books that end with that commandment. So on the way out this morning, please don't kiss me. Um, On the 9th of May, 1940, uh, France stood secure. The Nazis had taken over Poland, Czechoslovakia, Australia, and a few other minor places. But France stood secure. Not a single French soldier, as far as we know, was on... Not a single German soldier, as far as we know, was on French soil. The mighty fortifications stood between France and Germany, known as the Maginot Line, guarded and armed with thousands of soldiers ready to defend against any invasion. And on top of that, the French army was by all estimates the most modern and best equipped and most professional army in the world. The Germans didn't stand a chance. And because of this, because they were such a um, well-organized and professional and best-equipped army in the world, they were lax. And they failed the two um, commands that are given to us in the text this morning to be watchful and to be sober-minded. They were not sober-minded. They did not take the threat seriously of the Germans coming. And if it did, then they knew they would win. They were not watchful. Indeed, they had given up looking and and guarding the most um, uh, unguarded, uh, the most vulnerable area in which the Germans had gone through many times before, through the Ardennes, through Belgium. They left it unguarded. They were neither sober-minded nor watchful. And as a result, the next day, the 10th of May, 1940, the Germans invaded and they didn't invade where the, the, the French thought they would, expected to, for them to invade or really wanted them to. They invaded where they were the least prepared and they were powerless. 
to fend off this invasion. They were not sober-minded. They were not watchful. They did not take their enemy seriously. As believers in Christ, we have an enemy, an adversary, and we would do well to heed the warnings of Peter here to take him seriously, to be watchful, to be sober-minded. Who is this adversary? He has many names in Scripture, but here he is simply called the devil, um, a Greek word which describes him as a deceiver. He is the enemy of God and His people, and His goal has always been to pervert anything good that God has made, and all that God has made is good. He seeks to turn God's people away from Him. And He does not have a pitchfork, and He does not have horns as displayed in the cartoons. He isn't to be messed with. We are called to be sober-minded and watchful. On the one hand, though, we should not give him too much credit. We should not ascribe to him too much power. Scripture is clear that Satan is not God's equal, as if God had a foe that could defeat him. Our universe is not caught up in a dualistic battle where two equal armies are duking it out and we're not sure who's going to win. That's not how it works. Satan is a created being and he is not God's equal. He is not omnipresent, omnipresent like God. That is present everywhere. He is confined to one space at a time. He is not omniscient like God is. That is all-knowing, but has to rely on the reports of His minions. Nor is He omnipotent, all-powerful like our God. He is limited in His power. Furthermore, He has been defeated. He's been defeated in the wilderness when uh, Satan attacked Jesus with all that he had with these temptations and where the first Adam failed to withstand the temptations of Satan, the second and greater Adam, our Savior, he obeyed on our behalf. And he has been defeated at the cross and especially on Resurrection Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. Death itself could not hold our Savior. And as those who are united to Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, then the victory has been done on our behalf as well. And one day, He will be thrown into the lake of fire. He has been defeated, is being defeated, and will be defeated. We also must realize in some mysterious way, He's also under the control of the Lord. For God in His power and providence and sovereignty, He allows Satan to do nothing beyond God's control and knowledge. We see this with Job, right? Do you remember who brought up Job's name? It was God. And then God put limits on what Satan could do. There's much mystery there, but the end result is that we should not... We should not give him too much credit and power. And yet, the other extreme is true as well. We should not underestimate him or doubt his reality. Do you think Jesus doubted his reality in the wilderness? He was very real. As one commentator pointed out, Doriani uh, said, We live in an age in which the idea of evil is gone. When someone chooses an evil and sinful lifestyle, we label it as inappropriate. When someone sins in the public sphere, it is not labeled sin, but an alternative choice. In general, our culture thinks that Satan is at best someone to be flirted with, or at worst, does not exist at all. 
to use a, another military illustration, um, you know, the Vietnam War, we, we greatly underestimated our enemy. And the Viet Cong would not engage in a real battle like we were used to. We thought we could show up with our superior training in tanks and fight a conventional war, but the Viet Cong weren't interested in that. And as a result, we had um, many, many casualties because we underestimated our opponent. And that's how Satan works. He doesn't play fair. He plays dirty. He plays dirty. And so we must heed the warning of Peter here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to be watchful and sober-minded. Why? Are there areas in our lives in which we need to be more watchful and more sober-minded? Personally, are there areas in our own lives where we need to be more watchful and more sober-minded? Because he's, he's up to something. He's up to something. Uh, Verse 8 tells us, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is the only place in Scripture where he's described as such. And he's prowling, walking stealthily, looking to bring harm to someone. We have a cat who lives around our house. I can't say we have a cat. Because the cat's very um, sure that he does not belong to us. And we hadn't fed him either. That's the trick. Uh, we've named him Pepper. Now, Pepper um, lives on his own terms. And we don't really ever see Pepper. Uh, because he's always, what, prowling around. I came home this week and he had a, um, a songbird in his mouth. Heading over into the, uh, into the, the bushes. Very proud of himself. He was prowling prowling, looking for a bird to devour. Our enemy is not a tomcat. Our enemy is a roaring lion. How does he work? How does he work? We need to know how he works. You know, the problem with the French, the problem in the beginning of World War II is they had seen how the Germans worked Uh, They had seen how they had brought new tactics and strategies into war and how they were devastating other countries' armies. But do you know, they didn't do anything about it. They saw, but they didn't adapt. They saw, and they did not prepare. How often do we see how Satan works, and yet we keep operating as we've always done, not preparing ourselves for the spiritual war in which we find ourselves how does he work against individuals? I think, I think two ways specifically we can say is the first that he works through lies and the second through temptation. John eight forty four, Jesus describes Satan as he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Can you think of a time in which this lie... This nature to lie was on display. Very opening chapters of Scripture, right? Genesis 3, where he is lying to Adam and Eve, twisting the truths of God, leading them into temptation. 
Satan will use worldly views of science to cause us to doubt the truth of Scripture. He will put lies in the mouths of those who are around us, perhaps even those whom we love, to steer us away from fidelity to the Lord and to our families. And he will pervert a culture so that it no longer values the truth but falsehood. Have you ever met a compulsive liar? I know one, not, not here, no one you know. But you better believe every time he opens his mouth, it's just not true. Now, it may not be 100% false, but you know there's a bit of a poison in there. And that's how Satan works. We believe the lies of the devil in our own flesh when we look at something forbidden and say, I need that. Or we decide, I, I need that in order to make myself happy. I know that you don't have those things, right? I've got to have just this one time I'm going to. That's not really true, is it? It's subtle. The second one is temptation, right? More obvious. More obvious when we think about it, but less obvious in the moment. For rarely is there a big sign that says, you're heading into bad areas, turn away now. Except God has given us a spirit to do just that. He works through temptation in a, in a way that is subtle and um, I think we underestimate how he works in temptation. Because do you know, what a, you know what a long con is? A long con is when you um, uh, have the long view in, in picture. And a con man will allow himself to have small defeats along the way to get the big win at the end and wear you down. That's how Satan works. Satan is the best long comment of all, slowly eroding our consciences, our dedication to Scripture, and whispering those small lies into our ears so they'll add up into one big one that we don't realize we've believed along the way. And so, as we think individually, we need to be sober-minded and watchful for the lies of Satan as they present themselves to us and to these temptations. Where are those areas in which you or I, that we are weak? If you think about the Cold War and how it was not a shooting war, right? But it was a shooting war because we had these conflicts in Korea, uh, Vietnam, and then the Cuban Missile Crisis. These points of vulnerabilities where our enemies would attack us. And that's exactly how Satan works. Those those weak areas. What are your weak areas? How does Satan work against the church? So he's, He's not just interested in us individually. He is working against the church. Let me say this. That when a church is pressing in and seeking the Lord and people are coming to know Jesus and growing in Christ, that's when you should look. For the work of Satan. Uh, The Lord is blessing our church in amazing ways right now. We've seen conversions downstairs with our Wednesday night crew. We've seen new visitors. We've seen folks uh, really growing in Christ. We should fully expect Satan to be active as well. And we ought to pray all the harder. How does he attack churches? I think there are two or three key ways. And the first is false teaching. If you look at the New Testament, there are very few letters in the New Testament that don't deal in some way with the issue of, of false teaching. 
How does this happen? It usually doesn't happen overnight. It usually happens over a longer period of time. And the first thing that Satan does is he erodes the authority of God's Word in a church. By the way, this is one of the, the great things about our form of government, that we have elders collectively who guard what is um, preached and taught. You know, if, if I were to preach um, unhelpful things, I have men who would take me aside very quickly and, and put an end to it. And I'm thankful for that. Um, this is why the session has oversight of what is taught in our Sunday school classes and small groups to guard us from false teaching. This is a, a good thing. But it begins with an erosion of the, of the authority of God's Word. And once the Word of God is brought into suspicion, then it's only a matter of time before the gospel itself is forsaken. And Christ no longer is God, but simply a moral teacher. The second is ungodly conflict. I say ungodly because some conflict is good. Uh, When we have different opinions, God gives us different views and different backgrounds. Um, We have to decide which of those is the best one. That's, That's a good thing, right? Ungodly conflict is fueled by pride and contentiousness and anger. You remember the old um, line that um, Dale Huff, the former interim next door, likes to say, it's not the color of the carpet that splits the church, it's who controls the color of the carpet. Uh, Satan will very quickly attack a church using um, ungodly conflict. The conflict that was going on in 1 Peter 5, though, was external, con- external pressure through persecution. Satan was stirring up unbelievers in leadership and uh, their friends and using their influence to bring persecution to the church. So, ha- so now that we know how Satan works, what are we to do about it? We're to resist him. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Do you think he's fleeing from you or to Jesus who's standing behind us? We stand in Christ and when we resist the devil, the devil will flee from us. Verse 9 of our text, Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter gives us several reasons, two or three specifically, for how we're to resist the devil. And the first is that we would stand firm in our faith. Firm in our faith. Now, I don't think this is so much talking about our feeling of faith or even our personal trust in Christ. That's certainly at play here. This is talking about faith in the terms of what Scripture teaches, to stand firm in the faith. To stand firm in the promises of Scripture. Do you remember how, Satan, how Jesus resisted Satan in the wilderness? He quoted Scripture. If the second person of the Trinity would use his own word to resist the devil, then certainly we ought to as well. To stand firm, not in ourselves, not in our own power, not in our own strength, but to stand firm in the truth. As we think about when he comes against us with those lies, how do we resist the lies? With the truth. How do we resist temptation with the promise in 1 Corinthians 10 that God will always give us a way of escape? How do we resist false teachers in the church? By knowing the truth and pushing back. How do we resist ungodly conflict? 
by knowing the word that we are to put others before ourselves, to count others as more significant than we count ourselves, and to bring biblical categories to difficult situations. But Peter tells them too that you're not alone. You're not alone. Knowing, he says, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It is one of the greatest lies of Satan that you are alone and that no one else is facing what you're facing. That's just not true. Whether hardship and heartache or fierce struggles against sin, you're not alone. You're not alone. Finally, in verse 10, we see that our suffering is only for a little while. This spiritual warfare in which we find ourselves isn't forever. It's for a season. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Uh, Have you ever told your children, hey, they come to you and say, hey, can we go somewhere? And you said, just a little while, just a little while longer. Now, sometimes that little while longer means, you know, 30 seconds or so. And sometimes a little while longer means a little while longer. We're not told how long a little while longer is. That's the uncomfortable bit, right? Um, It ultimately refers to the return of Christ. When the spiritual warfare that we're caught up in will finally be over. Christ comes back and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Until then, we know that he's got us. That he has us in his hand. Not only are we not alone when it comes to the church, we have other people who are facing the same thing we are and they're they're there to help us. But God also is there for us. This text tells us that he has called us to His eternal glory in Christ Jesus. This is what, a reference to what's called effectual calling, that God, what God does when He makes us believers. He calls us in such a way that we come running to Him, enraptured with Him. But here's the thing, He hasn't just called us to conversion. And He hasn't just called us to adoption. And He hasn't just called us even to persevere in this world. He has called us ultimately to what is to come, to the eternal glory of God in Christ Jesus. And that means that while there may be bumps along the road, while the road may be hard and fierce and difficult, full of suffering, full of spiritual warfare, full of desperate battles every day, the end is sure and He's got you. He who has called you, He will not let you go. And He who began a good work work in you will see it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 He's got you. And when He comes again, He will restore. He will confirm, He will establish, and He will strengthen. I love this first word in those four verbs. He will restore. It's the word that is used in Matthew chapter 4, 21 to speak of of John and James, the son of Zebedee, sitting mending their nets. 
all the hardships along the way of throwing their nets out, all the rocks and the anchors and, the, and, and all the debris at the bottom of the seafloor, it would have torn those nets and they would sit there mending it, knitting it together slowly, slowly until it is ready to go to be used. This is what God does to us. We have battle scars too, don't we? We have hardships. We have wounds. We've been hurt. This is not a battle without casualties. And yet, God is in the mending business. And He will mend us when He comes, but He mends us now as well. For the future has broken into the present. The victory that finally will come when Christ will come again as a God who is outside of time and space, it is breaking into the now as well. And He is mending our hearts. He is mending our wounds. How? Because He's good. And because at the cross, at the cross, at the cross He would take the penalty for our sins. And He would do that which was necessary that we might be called to His eternal glory in Him, in Christ Jesus, so that we, might be, we who are His might be saved and spend eternity with Him. As we fight this battle, we know that the war is won. And that we stand strong in His might, not our own. Do you know what happened to the French? 46 days after the invasion, the 10th of May, 1940, the unthinkable happened. France surrendered and was lost. But that's not the end of the story, is it? For the war was won, but it was won by somebody else. It was won at the cost of great bloodshed. And so too, we, when we think about this war that we're involved in, it has been won, but it's been won by somebody else at the cost of great bloodshed, the blood of our Savior at Calvary. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that the war has been won. Help us, Lord, until then to stand firm in your might and your strength, that we would be watchful and sober-minded, watching out for our adversary who prowls prowls around looking for someone to devour. We thank you, Lord, that you have crushed your son, that we might be protected. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In the name of Jesus, amen.